The Title Block, episode number 13, Sholom Dolgoy. Welcome back to The Title Block, the show about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I'm your host, Michael Cruz, and on this episode I speak with lighting designer Sholem Dulgoy. It's been a very busy fall for me, but uh, now that the holidays are upon us, I can get this one out to the world. Thank you for sticking with me, and I hope to have more episodes out starting in the new year. One quick note about the start of this podcast. Sholem, who started his career at Carleton University, mentioned sock and bustin. Uh, I did not ask him to elaborate and, was, uh, and to help give this discussion context. It's probably helpful to know that this is the Carleton University student theater troupe that's been around since 1948, shortly after the university opened. And it's still going strong there, producing both classical and modern works every year. As well, later in the podcast, we talk about the book that was instrumental in Sholem's training that introduced him to the CIE chromaticity diagram. The full name of this book uh, that we did not quite get to is Color, Science, and Lighting the Stage by William Warfel and William Clappert. It's still available today for purchase, and if you are interested at all in understanding color, it is a great resource. Finally, I want to turn you on to a podcast from New York called In One. Host Corey Paddock interviews American theater designers about their careers, and it is a great resource for the personal histories of award-winning designers like Ken Billington, Beverly Emmons, and John McKernan. Check it out, especially if you're a designer and educator. If You, you can also find the episodes there at inonepodcast.com. That's in1podcast.com. Check them out. Okay. On to my chat with lighting designer Sholem Dolgoy. Sholem Dolgoy is one of Canada's senior lighting designers in the field of performing arts and entertainment. Originally from a theatrical background, his diverse portfolio includes dance, opera, corporate events, exhibit and architectural projects, and teaching, training, and development. Raised in Ottawa, Sholem began his career as a theatre technician at Carleton University. After a few years spent at Theatre Calgary, he returned to Toronto, the city of his birth, in the 1970s and worked extensively at Toronto Free Theatre, the National Ballet of Canada, and many independent projects, garnering him four Dora Maver Moore nominations. Sholem has brought his theatrical design skills to the field of exhibit design, themed environments, large-scale multimedia presentations, and corporate events, with his work featured at Expo 86 in Vancouver, the Royal Ontario Museum, the Inco Gallery of Earth Sciences, among others. You will find his work in many famous players' movie theatre lobbies in Toronto, Sudbury, and Edmonton, and at trade shows for Toyota, Chrysler, and Volvo. I'm joined by Sholem at Ryerson Theatre School, where he is a full-time faculty member as the director of the Performance Production Program, and he's a long-time member of the Associated Designers of Canada. Sholem, that's quite the bio. Welcome to the title block. Well, thanks so much. <laughs> and I had to abridge that a little bit. So tell me about your early career in Ottawa. How did you find your way to Carleton University? When I graduated, the track was, you will go to university. I didn't feel I was university material. And uh, through the guidance counselor, ended up being a shelver in the library at Carleton University. And I thought, well, I will 
Uh, I can take a course for just administrative costs, which was, I think, $4.50. So mm-hmm. I took a French course. And I said I would work with Sock and Buskin, who was the drama club on campus and quite famous and infamous. So people have come from there, Guy Sprung, um, John Palmer, uh, Tim Bond had all worked there. And a funny story that they had, uh, when I was in, I think, grade 11 or 12, there was a little item in the newspaper where to raise money, they had advertised a show called 1001 Freudian Delights and had packed the theater for one or two bucks a piece, which in the 60s was a decent amount of money, 300-seat theater. And in the, in the newspaper description, dim green lighting, somebody who may or may not have been clothed scampers across the stage, and then the audience waits. And they wait and wait and wait, and finally they get pissed off enough, they go backstage and there's nobody there. Sock and Buskin gets hauled on the carpet by the student council saying, you can't do that. And I think my memory is they cited P.T. Barnum in terms of, you know, if you've paid, what's your expectation? Mm-hmm. So I thought, I want to work with these guys. Right. Now, all the enfant terribles had left, so we they weren't quite that way. But uh, I did one or two shows with them and then got offered a job to be the part-time assistant technician in this 300-seat theater with reasonably up-to-date uh, lighting equipment and nobody to say no. Had you had any experience prior to this? Like what? Uh, I had done high school, um, but our lighting system was from basically from the 1920s, which was when the high school had been built. And we didn't get to do much with it. And then for the musicals, which was our big deal, the um, technical shop teacher was the one calling the cues, but we didn't refocus. I think I refocused one lamp. Right. So it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. I did sound and push chairs around and that kind of thing. Right. Now, from there, you went to the National Theatre School. Yes. Yeah. We'll talk about your experience there, but how did you how did you find your way to the National Theatre School? What, what what made you think this is going to be my career? Um, so I'm at Carleton University taking this year off and didn't have the courage to go to the West Coast like my friends did and didn't have the courage to go to Europe like I thought I might or any of those things mm-hmm. and just wasn't ready to, to leave home. So I was working at Carleton, and my mother's bugging me, go saying, apply to National Theatre School. Oh, Ma, go away. One day in the tunnels at Carleton, because they have these tunnels to connect the buildings, because it's wintertime, there's a little sign, a little post-it that says, uh, auditions for National Theatre School, and a little light bulb goes off, pun and no pun intended. And I think, yeah, okay, fine, I'll apply to National Theatre School, and I get in. Uh, the irony was, after I got in, I got told by David Peacock, who was the director of the production program at that time, and then he became general director. He said, they almost didn't let me in because they thought I knew too much. Oh, really? Which I found really disappointing because, uh, for a bunch of reasons. I mean, there's in terms of what National Theatre School was then, there's a whole rant that we may or may not want to commit to tape, and so we'll see where that goes. (laughs) So anyways, I applied to National Theatre School, and I go, and um, the training there at that point was, I think, more apprentice style as opposed to proper. There were classes, but it was, the program was still very new, and I think had been added on, oh, gee, we've got these actors, we need to do, we need to have stuff for them. Uh, There's a template 
book, uh, the, the template for the National Theatre School is a book written by Michelle Saint-Denis, which has an extensive details on how to train actors. And then there's, I think, two pages on, oh, yes, and we have to train production people, and mainly through what they call the central project. So you're supposed to follow all that through on paper. But um, certainly at that time, there was very little pedagogy, right. which has fueled my passion for teaching. Yes, indeed. And we'll get to that a bit later, but the, uh, we'll get to that a bit later, excuse me. But let's go to Calgary. You ended up at Theatre Calgary after yes. National Theatre School. Yeah. Um, what brought you out there, first of all? What did you do um, they, I, I think I was told that I could apply for it. The, what I found out again later from David Peacock, this was after the fact, no, I found out from Clark Rogers that they had gone looking for somebody, couldn't find anyone, had gone to the National Theater School, said, do you have anyone? I was recommended with a caution. Okay. <laughs> I'm not, I can't remember exactly what the caution was, and, and I did have some really bad crash and burns in that first year, mm-hmm. finding my feet. Um, so uh, that's how I ended up at Calgary. During in, when I was at uh, National Theater School in the summer, because it was a two-year program at that point, so the summer between first and second year, and then the summer afterwards, I worked for an organization called Ontario Youth Theatre that um, has disappeared off the radar, but was a, uh, a whole program to bring training for uh, young people in their teens and early 20s. And so the first year I was production manager, another bizarre tale, and then the following two years, so it was three seasons I did, was production manager and lighting designer. Right. I'm going to pause and then, and then And then I end up at Calgary. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so you make it. So, was that coherent? Have have you seen the timeline, or should I repeat that in terms of how I how I get there? I think that's clear. Right, I think that's clear. Um, You went there as a lighting designer. No, I went. I went as technical director. Right. And I'm trying to remember if there was ever a conversation about lighting design, and I said, "Well, I'd like to do lighting design too." Uh, And they they probably went, "Yippee! We don't have to pay for this." Right. But I didn't see that at that point. Um, so I, I end up being technical director and lighting designer. That's in my first year. And then in second year was production manager, some technical direction and lighting designer, although there was some other lighting design done by other people. Right. And tell me about those early years at uh, Theater Calgary. You, you told me before that it was sort of the second wave because uh, Theater Calgary had originally started in 1968 and you were there in 71, I think. Yes. Uh, and there was some sort of turnover. Um, so working back even a little bit further, and you can find this on the on on the web. Um, Theater Calgary comes out of an organization called Mac Fourteen mm-hmm. that was an amalgamation, if memory serves me right, of a couple of amateur groups that went semi-professional, and then went professional. And with Christopher Newton as the artistic director, Cameron Porteous as the designer, and uh, there was a woman who was their general manager. Uh, and I think that group lasted two or three years and then got quite burnt out. Christopher decamps to Vancouver and there was wholesale exodus. Uh, The only people who continued from that group to the one that I was with were the secretary and the uh, season's ticket person. Right. And so I arrive at Theatre Calgary and I go to the desk where the previous technical director had been and uh, the only information was... Uh, a list of um, volunteers that we could call on whose phone numbers had expired and so they weren't there, Uh, where to get plexiglass Mm -hmm. in town, Mm -hmm. and my predecessor's divorce papers. That was it. 
There was no other information. The best part, the best story, is that Mac 14 had started building a facility in the east end of Calgary and uh, had only gotten money together to put the foundation in. So in when you drove into this part of town, which I just spoke to my brother's girlfriend who said, well, what about the hookers who are around there? And I don't remember seeing any, so maybe <laughs> I was oblivious. So anyways, this building came up out of the ground about four feet and was a basement with nothing on top of it. And the previous season at the strike of the last show, the crew was so burnt out they just hurled the scenery down the stairs into this basement which was it was it was a good space high ceilings and all that kind of stuff but a basement Mm -hmm. slammed the hatch shut because because that's what it was that was the door to get into it and walked away and so when we showed up as the start of the new team we couldn't even get down the stairs and they had to clear it out that's quite the legacy to uh, it was quite the legacy (laughs) yeah yeah so it was called the barn it was effectively uh, affectionately called known as the barn Mm -hmm. i'm going to the barn to talk to the carpenter right excellent and what kind of um tell me about the work that you did there just quickly before we get back to toronto um, you ended up designing a bunch of shows at Theatre Calgary. That, that, was, that was really painful. And so in our theme of, of disasters and successes, um, the equipment was uh, installed by Ariel Davis, which then became Control Lighting. Ah, yes. Ariel Davis, uh, their, their slogan was lighting at a third the cost. What they didn't tell you is that you get a third of the lighting. <laughs> so the fixtures were largely um, PAR-64 light bulbs that were put into a light fixture that was an extrusion that had lensing on the front, so it kept sucking up more light with shutters that didn't work. Uh, and some fresnels that were sort of okay, and that was the those were the fixtures in the theater, and I had never seen anything like these fixtures at all. The dimming consisted of two banks of uh, six, I think, and it was a giant auto transformer with sliders on the front plate. So it was, it was overall, it was a 6K dimmer with these tap-offs, mm-hmm. and as it heated up, they got stiff and they wouldn't move, and it was called lighting at your fingertips. This was vertically mounted on the wall, so you had to kind of slide it up and down. Um, eventually after I nearly got fired because things weren't working out, but they didn't fire me because they probably didn't have anybody else to hire, I kind of got my feet and realized that the only way I was going to be able to light the shows was to call every high school in town and borrow fixtures. And then for one, Romeo and Juliet insist that we rent some equipment. We got a touring piano, um, dimmer rack from the Calgary Stampede and that sat for the second half of the season. I rented some lights from Malabar in Winnipeg, which wasn't actually connected with the Malabar here, who were at that point, I think, renting gear to the Royal Winnipeg Ballet. Wow, right. So we got a little package of equipment for that and got my feet in terms of, okay, if you don't have what you need, you have to ask for it and advocate for yourself. Right, which is a long tradition in Canada, certainly. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I remember being at the Blythe Festival and we scrounged about six or seven different places, and this was in the 1990s, so yeah. it's nothing really has changed that much. Yeah. Oh, terrific. Now, what brought you back to Toronto? So what sort of did you... Well, I'd done, I'd done two seasons of regional theatre with one Shakespeare, one musical, one um, Neil Simon, one Canadian play, and thought, okay, I want something more interesting. There was all this foment coming between Vancouver and uh, Toronto, so those were the choices. There was a girlfriend in Toronto, chose Toronto. Perfect. That's a, that's also a theme that's coming out of all my right. discussions yes. with people. 
Alan Stitchbury followed the girls to Vancouver. That was his reason for getting into theater. Um, Terrific. So you arrive in Toronto, uh, and you start working with Toronto Free. Well, I I picked up the phone and started calling around, and uh, called Second City. They weren't interested. Called Toronto Dance Theater. They said we have Jim Plaxton, right. and you and I were saying that you've been just talking to Jim Plaxton. Mm-hmm. Uh, called Tarragon. I don't remember that conversation. Called Toronto Free Theater. Shane Jaffe, who was the general manager at that point. I said, do you need a lighting designer? Got a mushy response. I said, do you need a technical director, production manager? He said, come on down. Again, so I did. Yeah, again, the theme. Um, that seems to be the way to get a job in the 70s is to be a tech uh, production di- uh, director and a uh, tech director. Uh, great. So now you work with TFT for quite some time. Um, I'm losing track. I think it was five seasons mm-hmm. is my memory. Yeah. And you lit a lot of their shows? Maybe? I lit most of, I think, all but one or two of the shows in that that time period. Yeah. And who was in charge? Who was their artistic director at that time? Martin Kinch. Martin Kinch. And how was your relationship with, uh, with him? And it, 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 it was really good. Um, I, th- it's always hard in retrospect to sort of, you know, what was really going on. Mm-hmm. But, um, I think they trusted me to, they trusted, they knew that I would get whatever the size of the show could get up. Cause we had nothing in terms of resources. And I had, gone to National Theatre School. I knew all the stuff that you needed. I'd also worked as an apprentice for the Canadian Opera Company mm-hmm. during that time, during this time period. And Dieter Penshorn, who was the production manager for both the opera and the ballet, and then eventually for just for the ballet, had built up, was in the process of building up very good production units. So I'd been to the shop up at the National Ballet, the, the one that they had up at um, in Scarborough before they moved, and knew what things needed to be if you wanted to produce stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and Martin wanted to the, the, the theater to grow. Um, the, uh, on an interesting note, when I spoke to Tom Hendry, who was in a sense the founder because he was the one who'd gone for the, the uh, local initiatives project, the LIP grant that had founded Toronto Free Theater, his vision had been no scenery, just lighting. So there was a fairly good lighting kit there. And he expressed to me just a few years ago his somewhat disappointment that that Martin was interested in production values as opposed to just simple theater. You can choose your value judgment however way you want you want to go with that. So I had the skills to build the production unit and hire people and do all of those things. And Martin trusted me to be able to do that. Right. And I was the one that he trusted to blow up at if things weren't going well. So I thought, okay... You know, so and then he would apologize, and I'd go, "Not necessary." Right, of course. Where did you get your crew from? I mean, there, was there a training? Was there a training grant in Toronto at the time? Ryerson Theater School had, wasn't was right, Ryerson. Right? No, Ryerson had just started, yeah. and I would get phone calls from Sandy Black, the founder of the production program, who he say, "Could you use students?" And so we had we were the kings of portable seating. I think Passamari was as well. Mm-hmm. Tarragon, not quite so much. And so we had these bleacher seats that in the second half of after we did the first renovation um, that needed a whole bunch of bodies to move around. And so they would come down and we would move a bunch of stuff. And I'd say, thank you very much. And I guess they got marks for it. Right. (laughs) Why not? Yes. Um, Uh, So uh, in terms of so Bill Chesney, who was mm -hmm. uh, uh, who went there and, and then came back here for his degree and is now at Waterloo. Um, I hired him as a scenic painter. Right. 
And did you, what space were you in, by the way? Uh, this was the 24 Berkeley Street. Right. So the original rect, uh, square building, 55 by 55, and I think memory is like 25 or 30 feet to the underside of the beams. Mm-hmm. That's a good memory. Um, terrific. And uh, you, when did you leave Toronto Free? Uh, I think it was 78. We'd have to check the resume. 78 or 79, because I got an offer from the National Ballet. Yeah. Now, how did that work out? Now, you had done dance to this point? No, I was the accidental tourist. Right. So the reason I got hired, uh, I had worked for Dieter Penshorn as, uh, when, at the opera company. So I'd been the assistant. And I think the third year there, I wrangled my way into lighting three operas. Two were on a mix, on a double bill, and then one by itself. One went really well, one went okay, and one was absolutely catastrophic. Mm -hmm. I was lighting Grace Bunbury as Salome, Mm -hmm. so I had an all-white cast and a black actor, black performer, and zero experience at how to do this. Absolutely none. And the dress rehearsal was awful, and then I sat for a couple of days and blind re-recorded the whole show on paper, handed it to the crew. They were running a 90 scene, sorry, 90 dimmer, 10 scene preset desk on these little cards that they used to write the levels down. That's right. the process. Mm-hmm. So I rewrote it, handed it to Jimmy Fuller and Ron Montgomery, who you and I talked about. Mm-hmm. And all Ron, Ron or Jim, Jimmy came to me afterwards and they said, Boy, that was different <laughs> because they had a little joystick to do the crossfades. And Jimmy was a really good operator. Yeah. And it wasn't operating at all like what it had in the dress rehearsal. Right. So they were, you could see her at least. So I'd, I'd, I'd survive that. Mm-hmm. I didn't get hired again. Right. Well, I got hired to do, I think, a tour. Uh, and when Lofty Mansuri came in, he was just not interested in what I'd done and those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I'd worked with Dieter, and Dieter was very impressed with how quickly I was able to set cues because there were other people who were quite ponderous, I think would be the des- best description, and it took a really long time. And so he felt I could come in and solve that. The other, But his main issue was that the head electrician was also the, the um, lighting, it all depends which, which were, so light, the lighting director, we use the lighting director. Mm-hmm. Nick Cernovich would call the job the lighting janitor, which he told <laughs> me a number of years later. So this was a gentleman who very, very talented, but that the crew were fighting and the, and the head electrician at that point I was told, and I've never spoken to him for his side of the story, was that he would switch hats depending on the situation, whether he was head electrician or lighting director. People were getting kind of irritated. He left of his own volition, I think that. And so Dieter brought me in essentially to quell the crew and give them stability. And I was able to do that. And so they wanted me to be technical director. And I said, and and do lighting. And I said, let's turn this around. I'll be called your company lighting designer, and I will do technical direction for you. And so for the National Ballet, that was actually a breakthrough because no one ever, had ever had that job before. Wally Russell, who then went on to Strand Lighting, had been the general director. He'd done a fair amount of lighting for them mm-hmm. um, as in-house. Uh, famously, they'd had David Hersey, who had, di- who had done the Sleeping Beauty. Um, uh, Gil Wexler had done the Giselle. Uh, Tom... Um, Memory blank. Tom Skelton. Tom Skelton, thank you. Tom Skelton had done a number of ballets, which I, which I had watched him cue. And when we come to the mentor, you know, who, who, you know, who has helped you, um, that was very instructive. But, but the in-house stuff hadn't really, 
I don't think had there hadn't been somebody devoted to it, and and so I, I brought that to that to that process. Um, with CUC and, and National Ballet, were they um, was there a sort of practice when they did the large <clears throat> original ballets to or, or productions to bring in people from outside the country, like yes. to bring in Americans yeah. and, and Europeans? Yeah, yeah. Um, Canadian Opera Company certainly in the early days. So when I apprenticed for the Canadian Opera Company, they were still semi. I wouldn't call it semi-professional, but weren't weren't completely professional in that their season was five weeks in one go in start with a loading in August through to October, I think, largely for the chorus. So the chorus, as I understood it, would take their holidays in that time period so that they could perform the operas. Right. Okay, great. So National Ballet, so you were with them for how long? Six years. Six years. Um, a year longer than I thought I was going to, and it there was some really good out of that and some not so good out of that. I got fired, right. essentially. And and do, do you want to talk about Yeah, I'm totally good why? with it. So, well, it was it's it's an interesting conversation in terms of of the ideas to resources equation, which is my theme for teaching. So, the National Ballet gets put on the map through their Sleeping Beauty that they're touring. Mm-hmm. And the design is by David Hersey, and he designs it. I was up in Ottawa when they were doing the some of the dress rehearsals, and it was a big rig. A lot of scenery, a lot of stuff needed to happen. They then need to tour it. Uh, my understanding, the lore amongst the crew was that they went to Regina and took a smaller touring rig and bought a two-scene or a memory control desk, some kind of control desk. I don't know if it was two-scene preset or memory or early, early memory that somebody had built in his garage. Oh, boy. And it didn't work. Yeah, no kidding. And there they are flailing in Regina, and I had worked for a little bit at what the shop that became Canadian Staging Projects, and they had, this had happened just a few years before, and they had shipped out old-style piano boards with a big label on it saying, this works, or something <laughs> like that. And so this was a huge show that they're trooping all over North America, and with, with a pack, with a rental package, no multi-cable, all bundles, no pre-hangs, none of that stuff, just a bear to put up and down. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, Tom Saunders was brought in, came as head electrician, and he said, I can fix this for you. And he put together a really elegant touring package that was sustainable for what their touring needs were. And it fit in one truck. And Sleeping Beauty had almost bankrupted the company. And Dieter was very, very aware of this. And he said, electrics will not exceed one truck. And after I got my feet wet in terms of how all this worked, and I said, we need more gear... And he said, we can't exceed one truck. Dimmers were still fairly big. I mean, mm-hmm. we had 96 dimmers. You could probably get 600 dimmers for, this, for the amount of space that the 96 took up in terms of the size of the racks. Um, and uh, that was his position economically. I will not jeopardize the company because another truck meant more crew, more time, all of those kinds of things. I became the defender of this with the guest choreographers. Well, I'm really sorry we can't do that because we don't have enough gear. Mm-hmm. And so when Nick Cernovich came to guest, uh, to we were doing some gal or something, and he was doing something with um, Danny Grossman, and I was in the chair doing something, and as he and I commiserated just a few years ago, he thought, oh, poor baby, he can't possibly achieve what's being asked for because there's just not enough equipment. And 
so I, I got I think I got let go because of that. So there was a change of artistic directorship. Eric Brun came in and there had been complaints about me and I was on a seasonal contract. So they just didn't renew as a, but effectively I was fired. Yeah. Now, the win out of that for me was that we did a production of John Cranko's Onegan mm-hmm. that uh, Dieter, because it was there were higher stakes the designer was a German designer, which was Dieter was German, so this was really important. And he said, we can get more lights for more punch. That was the way he looked at it. And so I had more gear, which I didn't have enough, but I had enough to make it at least doable. Mm-hmm. And um, the show looked really good. And the European model is that the set designer is the lighting designer. Wow. And Jurgen Rose was the designer. And there were a number of places where the the National Ballet had, were renting its scenery to other companies. When Jurgen wasn't available, he, in fact, said, this guy in Toronto can do it. So I got to go to Copenhagen, Boston, and ABT with it before the scenery literally fell apart because it was all, it was made out of burlap, and the drops, we were at the Met at ABT, and the drops were literally falling apart because they're rotting. So that went away. Right. Um, but in terms of back, back to Dieter talking about punch, so the first scene is the garden scene, and I had some gobos and all that stuff, and we're talking 750-watt uh, radial-style uh, fixtures. We didn't have that many axials. Not a whole lot of K up there, but I knew I needed a lot of psych. So I had, I had doubled, at least doubled the amount of lights on the psych. And it looked good. And so we're sitting in that first queue, and I blind recorded it because I, you know, I wanted at least to have something to work for. And we're looking at the stage, and the psych is too bright. And I say to Jurgen Rose, well, the psych's too bright. We need to turn it, take it down. He goes, no, the stage isn't bright enough. And I had everything at full. Right. <laughs> okay, what do we now do? So all the gobos came out. The color got changed. You know, I dialed the psych down a little bit. But it was a really interesting lesson in terms of how much gear do you need to make those, to make that look work. Yeah, excellent. Now, you also did, just to, I just want to wrap up a couple of career things, and then we'll go back to sort of more general ideas. Uh, you also worked with the Factory Theater mm-hmm. uh, in the 1980s. Uh, yep. Um, and I jump-started the new building. Right, so you were, you were at the... So they, they, Adelaide, they right? did the renovation. Mm-hmm. So they did, this is, the, this is Adelaide and, uh, and Bathurst, mm-hmm. and they were doing the renovation, and they were doing Criminals in Love, directed, mm-hmm. uh, written and directed by... George Walker, George Walker right. and the building was under construction right. and there was the old service and the new service and nothing had been hooked up. And so to get the show focused and I think cued, I tied the the new the dimmers into the old service. So right. I, I jump started the theater, right. which was fun. Excellent. Uh, and, and that continues. Oh, actually, there's a good story there. Sure. So they had 12 dimmers that were dimmer packs bought from a company called Stage Lighting Associates, which had since gone out of business. And because of the structure of the show and the set design, designed by Reg Bronskill, mm-hmm. uh, I could light the show all with specials. I didn't have to do area lighting plus specials. It took me two days to figure out the patch because I ended up having to do a rolling patch where as stuff came out, I needed other stuff to go into the hole to be able to roll it over right. so that it would work. And that, that was because they only had 12 dimmers. Right. Fantastic. <laughs> That's a good lesson on economy as well. Uh, and how long were you at Factory? You- well, Factory, I was just gigging in. Right. So uh, I think it was over uh, on and off over eight years. Right. We'd have to look at the resume to and double check, but that's at, my memory. At this point, you are 
pulling back from being a technical director? You were oh, by by the time I hit, so when when I'm not rehired by the National Ballet, uh, fortuitously Jeffrey Dallas, mm-hmm. who other people may have talked about, he and I had connected through Paul Reynolds, um, and Jeffrey said he wanted me to come down, and then the year after I got let go at the ballet, I landed a corporate job that lasted quite some time. And then the following summer, I ended up getting offer at Shaw Festival as a guest designer. And so from that period on, I stopped having... So that's that was my freelance era. Right. So I was totally freelancing. Yeah. And what did you what did you do at the Shaw Festival? There were like five or six... Shaw Festival, I did five seasons, if memory serves me right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I did six... I did, most years I did one show and one year I did two. Right. Now, you talk about corporate work as well. You started at this time to sort of transition to doing more corporate work as exhibits and things like that. How how did, did that, was that just because your name was around and people said, we need someone to light this show? Or? Well, there's, there's a funny story there. So I get um, not rehired by the National Ballet, and I called up uh, Tim Crack to say there was this job available um, because I knew he had dance experience. And he got hired by the ballet and left what was to be a touring show from Asterix Productions, mm-hmm. who were doing corporate events for uh, Shackley. Mm-hmm. And they called me and said, would you like to do it? So we kind of swapped over, and that became my entree into it. I'd done a little bit of corporate work before, but this was um, the this kind of really dove into it. I did the, in terms of corporate work, I did the press conference that launched that was, sorry, the press conference for the sod turning for Wonderland. Right. And the rendering for that I still use as a color lighting exercise. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, and then now about your museum work, the what was, what was the opportunity that gave you that? Uh, serendipity. I got uh, Paul Matheson, mm-hmm. who I'm trying to remember how we bumped into each other, um, but he gave me a call to assist him. Uh, to to support him on a project because he, at that point, he and his family moved to Halifax and he'd started the project and that was the entree into that. I don't think there was anything before that. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay, well, and that, I mean, we can talk about your um, academic transition as well and we start talking about training. Um, Let's talk about mentors and people that were important to you as well as shows that you thought were kind of the key to your success. So who was one of the first... Um, people that you looked at, you modeled yourself after? Uh, Gil Wexler mm-hmm. at Stratford. Uh, so I had, um, I'm self-taught. Right. So at the National Theatre School, there was no real training for lighting design. Mm-hmm. And so I had my year of playing in the at Theatre A at Calgary. I had gone to National Theatre School. I think they only gave me one lighting design because I ended up doing TD production management stuff for the most part. So I got one lighting design, uh, went to Calgary, you know, all that stuff that we talked about, drawing plots at two in the morning because there was no time because I was doing all these other things and just wanted to know, was I on the right course? So Mm -hmm. I went to visit Stratford. Nora Pauly, who had been the stage manager uh, at Calgary in the first year, longtime stage manager at Stratford. She facilitated an introduction with Gil Wexler. I bring him my little... Uh, sketch, uh, you know, d- tissue paper with magic marker layered up. 
okay, you're a professional, you know what you're doing, am I doing this right? Mm-hmm. And he looked at the plot and I, and, I, and he, he checked the, the, the spacing of my systems mm-hmm. and I went, oh yes, he understands. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said, yeah, you, you know, you, you, it looks like you know what you're doing. We talked a little bit about color. His best advice for color was if the creative team, director, other designers don't like it, you can't convince them that they're going to like it. Change it. And it was a really nice piece of advice. Mm-hmm. So I watched him queue a number of shows. I got an offer to, wangled an offer to be an assistant. And then I think the job at Free Theater came up. I called Gil. I said, what should I do? He said, always better to do your own work than to assist. Yeah, yeah. Did you do a lot of assisting in the 1970s or did you take uh, that? So I did, I was the apprentice assistant for the Canadian Opera Company. Right. Uh, I assisted Wally Russell on a number of shows, and I think that was it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the landscape was very different right. back then. In in a way that there was not a lot of opportunities, or a lot, not a lot of designers? Uh, I think, well, there, everybody was like me, you know, sort right. of, for the most part, having the, the TDPM job. There was Vlad, I can't remember his last name, who was at Hamilton, who was in um, Centaur. He came to Tarragon to do a couple of shows. Um, I think Rob Thompson actually was one of the first ones to, to, uh, sort of that, that's that group that was just slightly younger than me. So Rob Thompson, Harry Frayner, mm-hmm. um, Louise Guinan eventually comes online, but they were the ones, I mean, I kind of feel like I was a little bit of a trailblazer in that, particularly over the money conversation. I remember doing a show for Marion Andre at Theater Plus and, uh, he offered $250 and I think I said, well, I really think it's worth $300. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, and unfortunately this is radio, so you can't see it, but <laughs> he went, oh, I didn't think that, you know, money interested you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I had big hair. Yes, I looked like a hippie, but yeah, I had to pay the rent. Right. And so I've always been very, um, Bolshe, for want of a better word, sure. that the designers deserve to be paid. Right. And particularly working alongside hourly paid union people, you know what money is being spent. So why am I theoretically, I mean, certainly in, earlier in my career, was I worth it? Not necessarily. But today I feel yes. Why should I not be earning at least what those guys are earning when they're working in mm-hmm. the building? Exactly. Fair enough. Fair enough. And, and how about important works? Now, you said the, the Onyegin at, at the National Ballet was probably important. Uh, certainly in terms of creating something for the National Ballet that was that I was that I had more control over because I got to add more gear. Right. As opposed to just working in the rep plot, which was I mean, there were only ninety six lamps overhead. Uh, the booms were fairly good, not much for the size of stage space that that they were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how much did technology I mean Oh, sorry, if we're talking seminal shows. So for yeah. me, a seminal show um, was uh, Billy the Kid mm-hmm. that we did at Toronto Free Theatre. Uh, it was at an eight-week rehearsal period. People listening to this, eat your hearts out. <laughs> uh, and um, a really interesting set. And uh, I mean, I thought I did some very interesting work uh, at, at, um, at Free Theatre and started developing a style uh, with very little equipment. Mm-hmm. And so when I teach, I say, whatever, whenever you're putting a lamp down on the page or on the screen, 
go down if I only had one light. And it comes from that era of every light you read to think about, okay, am I using it as wisely as, as I need to or as I can? Mm-hmm. I remember having a discussion when I was with, uh, when I was down at the Shaw about, uh, and in that room with so many other designers, um, we were talking about sort of the Broadway style, uh, especially in the, you know, the last 15 years where the jewel uh, tone, well, no necessarily the, just the way of working where they're, um, I forget the name of the designer. He, he lit, uh, uh, Titanic and he would, he would instruct his assistants. So his assistants and associates would develop the plot where you have every light from every angle with every color, basically. And then the process of design was a winnowing of the stuff you don't need. Whereas in Canada, we go, what is the best use of, or even in small theater for that general, for that matter, we have, what was the best use of this equipment? And I always felt that the latter, the stuff where you are, you are forced to think about what is important is a much, ends up with a much more singular product. I agree. Like you, you end up with something that's much... That's I mean, I, yeah, I had, I mean, you know, jumping off from that, I had a conversation with Neil Peter Jean-Paulus, who's now down in uh, UCLA. Mm-hmm. And he was doing a fair amount of work up here. And his philosophy was, on the plot, put them all on 18-inch centers, figure it out later. Right. And when you look at Broadway plots, all the lamps point upstage, because you're figuring it out later, mm-hmm. where on our plots we point it in the direction that it's going because it's got a purpose. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that seems logical to me, but we don't have a luxury of a six week tech period or yeah. two month tech yeah. period. Okay, great. Now let's talk about style. You brought up style. So how, um, how has your style evolved from when you first started in the 1970s throughout the eighties and nineties? Like what did you learn? I think, I think the, the the arc of my career is how not to be afraid of color. Right. So direction, direction I had down pretty good. Mm-hmm. Texture, not so much. I remember Martin once saying, oh, I wish everything had gobos in it. And me going, oh, no, no, you couldn't possibly want that. I didn't have enough equipment to do it. And now I kind of understand what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. If I could have lamps that could have texture in all of them, that would be very cool. Mm-hmm. But... You know, I mean, if, if if one day we come up with an automated fixture that can have gobos in it with the right color temperature and CRI and all those kinds of things, that would be fabulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, I think if if I could light, if I were to light dance again with money being no object, I would have a gobo in every lamp. Right. Or to be able to choose whether to have the gobo in an every lamp. So anyway, direction, direction I had down quite well. So back to my time at Carleton. So one of my mentors was Robert Hanforth, who sadly passed away in the 80s in the AIDS epidemic. And he was directing for Sock and Buskin. And he was the first one to help me see it from a director's viewpoint. So he would give me a little drawing, basically showing the areas and where he wanted specials. It was up to me how to light it. Mm-hmm. And he, he liked what I did. And so I was intuitive about what direction of light says what. And I remember after one play, hearing an audience member talking about the shadows on the person's face. And I went, yes, everybody got it. Mm-hmm. So direction I head down. Um, texture we've talked about. Color, absolutely terrified of color and stayed very neutral uh, this was the era of Cinemoid, so was it going to be 52 or 53, which is now Lee 152 or 153? Mm-hmm. Wally Russell wasn't much help. I used to watch him sit for a lengthy amount of time, decide between 
two blues and two ambers, and that was it. <laughs> uh, and then the Grace Bunbury thing had really made me gun-shy about color, so I was very, very nervous. And what got me through that was working with Tom Skelton's plots that the ballet had in its rep. Right. Peter McKinnon had gone to hang out with Tom Skelton on a, on a grant, and Tom had given him the Chromaticity book, which had just come out, mm-hmm. that I wasn't quite sure what to do with, but now I really, really know what to do with it. And Tom said, this is everything you need to know about color. Mm-hmm. I learned about it sort of empirically by having to tour um, Tom Skelton's shows, particularly when we... So we had this touring rig that I talked about, and essentially we just put it up through the disc in because we had a memory board. And as long as I focused the show properly, it was okay because the pe- previous people had done it. Right. But there are a number of times when I had to redo it because circumstances changed, and I had to start analyzing how the color worked. And that was a huge, huge education because he was the master of color. I remember seeing one of his uh, magic sheets in... Uh lighting dimensions or something and it was alien to me it was like i i'm used to pictographic or scenographics and the layouts of all your areas and different concepts but he had it arranged by color and it was a whole sort of gradient yeah uh and i never quite knew how to sort of get my find my way through the right. magic sheet yeah. um is there was there a trick to it i mean we, people can go find these things online but um i guess that speaks to his kind of approach well uh, rob Tom. i mean have you talked to rob thompson yet not yet okay so in in your chat with rob thompson so rob goes to the lester polikoff studio in new york right yeah which was one of the training grounds for broadway along with yale Mm -hmm. and rob talks about how tom would do this exercise where they would start the lamp at full and dim it down open white Mm -hmm. and tom would call out the colors as it went through amber drift right so um that doesn't answer your question, but I just thought I would throw that in. Mm-hmm. Tom actually, so back to, so have we talked on 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 microphone yet about Nick Cernovich and his his philosophy of getting simpler and simpler? No, we no, talked about that no. before. Yeah. So Nick Cernovich, who was for a very long time the dean of dance lighting in Canada, trained in the United States and and not as a lighting designer but as an artist at Black Mountain, falls into lighting by happenstance and then comes to Canada, also following love, as I discovered, mm-hmm. um, and was very good with color and contrast. But the arc, as he and I talked about it, was to get cleaner and cleaner and cleaner with less and less color. Um, the reason I brought that up is that, ta- that, that Nick had created his own palette that he was totally comfortable with. Right. There was one piece in the National Ballet called Ketten Tans, which was a, a, a little sort of frothy piece that, as Ernie Abogov had said, had been designed to be run on plate boards. So you could run it manually in terms of how the cues were constructed. And it had an interesting contrast of a magenta and an amber on a, on a gobo pattern, on an AB pattern. I thought, oh, this is really quite cool. And then blue. And it was really vibrant and it really stood out. Mm-hmm. I thought, wow, this is really cool amongst a series of, of, of other stuff that I'd seen. I was doing research, this is now just a couple years ago, in Tom's archives at the uh, library in New York, the theater library in New York. Mm -hmm. And I looked at some of his plots, and he had used the same color palette a couple of decades before. So he'd found the thing that had worked for him, which is what Nick talked about. Right. And so in terms of my evolution, because I started out terrified of color, I can do a very 
uh, open, you know, close to open white. I haven't used open white for a really long time. And every once in a while I go, oh, I should try that. Um, it just doesn't work for me. And I'll, there's a scientific reason why. And I'll tell you in a moment that mm -hmm. I just discovered recently. But doing the corporate, I started and because of Tom and doing corporate. And I used to do these entertainment events with for for banquets, for for um, corporate events where it needed color. It was show busy. It was Broadway style stuff. I got to feel really, really comfortable with color, and now I can blend the two. Right. So I can either go really pale, really saturated, or combine the two, which is which is what I've done for opera. Mm -hmm. So the conversation about white light and palette. So there's a there's a a, um, a researched uh, phenomenon that as people as the the light goes down on the chroma on the on the uh, amber drift curve. People's preference is that, f that after a certain color temperature, I think it's 3,500, for it to drop slightly below that curve, which puts it into the lavender range, just a little bit. Right. And so I often will tint with lavender to clean it up. Right. And that's what I was doing intuitively. And then a few years ago, I did a workshop where this person who studies people's response to color, he talked about this. And I said, oh, that's why I'm doing it. Because when I look at white light... Something, you know, I kind of like it and then I don't, mm -hmm. which then segues to the whole rant about LED sources and what that color is because I totally loathe it and mm -hmm. the color rendering index, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. We're I, probably way off topic. We are now. a bit off topic, but, I, but, the, but I, there was a question I had about, <clears throat> just because we have about 15 minutes left, yeah. I think. Let's talk about training. Uh, your education you had at uh, National Theatre School, you said, wasn't fully focused on design. It was more focused on production. Is that right? Well, my, my, well for, first of all, so there are three programs at National Theatre School, acting, design, and they call it then technical. I think they call it production now. Okay. So design was set in costume design but not lighting. I see. And then the production technical program had lighting, but certainly my experience was no real training. Right. Okay. And you got your training through the uh, School of Hard Knocks, right? Empirical, yeah, for the most part. yeah. And so, well, and and watching people, um, uh, but in terms of photometrics and plan and section, I figured that out on my own, right? Because I, I I like geometry, yeah, exactly. And now, how now when you started um, talking to other people about it, for example, you did uh, you went back to the National Theatre School in the nineteen eighties to do some some uh, guest lecturing. Uh, what was your approach? Like, what did you want to tell them that you had not gotten? I, and this is, this is always my approach. I want to give people the, teach people the things that I wish somebody had taught me mm -hmm. so that when they fall on their faces, as we all do, that they've got enough skills that they can get up, wipe their snotty, slightly bloody nose, stagger forward and have some measure of success. Right. So my approach for teaching is to give people, is to assume creativity but to give them hard, practical skills that when they hang the light, if they have an idea in their head, they know how to hang the light to get it and know what color to put in it and know what's going to happen. Right. Okay. Um, oh, uh, that's the part of the question I was going to ask you. When choosing, I remember a lot of work here, because I went to the Ryerson Theatre School years ago. Uh, that's, where we're sitting, that's where we're sitting right now. I don't know if you said that initially. I did. Yeah, you think you did. You're I right. In my yeah. introduction. Yeah, okay. Um, it was all based, the color theory was based on the chromaticity diagram. Um, now, you say you got that from Tom Skelton. 
Well, I got, I got, so I had bought the book when it came out, mm -hmm. and I can remember Freddie Grimwood, who was the technical director at the theater school, going to visit, and Norbert Munchs, who was there then running the program, and he made, he made huge strides in terms of what the training was. And Freddie's saying, oh, isn't that, that's all just really, like, do we really need to do this? Right. And at the point, I hadn't really, really read the book, but I'd worked with Tom's stuff and it had become more intuitive in terms of the how to use it. And then one day I sat down and read it and went, okay, now I understand what this is telling me. Right. And what is the book again? So it's called Color Science, mm -hmm. The Chromaticity, uh, written by two people uh, at Yale, is my understanding, in okay. the early 80s. Right. And where they just march through and say, this is how it works. Mm -hmm. And I took a course recently from someone who works with light in the architectural world. And she said, there's been not much work done beyond that. And here's, because I'm really interested in the history of light and color and all those things. So I did some research on the research of light as it had evolved through gaslight. Well, basically with, with, the, with the onset of electric light. Mm -hmm. And there was a period of time. So the, chroma, the, 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 the chromaticity chart is developed in Paris in the early 1930s. So there were these international symposiums, and they didn't quite know what to do with light because it's so subjective. Mm -hmm. And so it moved from being a qualitative, sorry, from, from a qualitative how do we feel about the color to quantitative, how can we actually measure it? Mm -hmm. And so it went out of the realm of the artist's and I haven't done enough research, so I might be skating a little thin, into the realm of the, the scientist looking at it. So when you read anything about color and light, they always end with, and more studies should be done. Right, right. And so when we come to the whole thing about the quality of the color of LED light, it's, it's, a, it's a moving target. CRI doesn't quite do it. Mm -hmm. There's a new thing, new thing coming out called gamma area that's supposed to be able to help you more. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's, it's a morass of, of how you deal with it. So in terms of me understanding that we can't, Gotten off topic again because I do that. <laughs> That's okay. So, what was the question? Sorry, uh, was it was the was about the chromaticity diagram and how right. you how you use it as a teaching tool? Oh, how I use, yeah. so so it's really to understand the 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 relationship of what's inside the color. So, you need to satisfy the mm -hmm. eye for red, blue, green, but you don't have to use red, blue, green to do it. So, if you've got a green, blue, what color do you put opposite it? to satisfy the RGB to keep the eye happy so that you don't get the missing color. Right, 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 right. Okay, I see what you mean. Excellent. Now, you went to, when you, you've been at Ryerson Theatre School since the 19, early 90s, is that right? 1980. 1980, you're... I think it's my first, so Sandy Black calls wow. me up. Right. And he says, would you like to teach? Right. I had always wanted to teach. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so I said yes. Wow. And you developed... 8081, somewhere around there. Did you develop your own course, or was there a legacy, or was it something that you were sort of building from scratch, or...? So my conversation with Sandy was very funny. So, Sandy, how do, um, how do I fit, you know, how do, how do I, what I'm teaching, how does this fit within the program? Mm -hmm. And the dates that you're available are, <laughs> Sandy, sort of, you know, like, what, what should I be teaching? And what dates are you available? Was not interested in talking pedagogy at all. Right. So I started... You know, based on this, because I had come, come up through the School of Hard Knocks, how do I communicate that so that it's not so painful? Right. Um, what Craig Blackley, do you know Craig Blackley? 
No, but uh, tell me who he is. So Craig Blackley, graduate from here, worked in theater. I hired him to work on uh, Expo 86. Mm-hmm. can't remember when he graduated. He was at Theater London as production manager, I think, for a while, oh, when, yes. when Martha Henry was artistic director. That's right. Then worked for a period of time for Jack Frost Lighting, and now recently, and I haven't had a chance to connect with him, is, is teaching. So he's got a job in the London area. Mm-hmm. And I remember him saying, after I taught him, what he really liked is that I talked about, I taught about light. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the teaching is, what does light do? And then how do we get, how do we under, we need to know the technology of, that creates light so that we can get the light to do what we want it to do. Mm-hmm. Just as a sidebar now, the, when you switched into museum work um, and architectural work, that is, it seems a bit, it seems like the, the, the theatrical skills we have, uh, maybe the, the techniques may cross over, but certainly the technical knowledge would be completely different. How did you... How did you switch? Well, fortunately, I mean, I haven't done that much architectural, but the museum world, because you're still spotlighting things, right. it's, it's what we do in miniature. So much smaller light sources, much smaller fixtures, uh, because you're dealing with, with artifacts, much lower light levels, mm-hmm. but it's still how can, we sh- how can we reveal something? How can we see something? Although there's an interesting conversation that, that some of the curators do not want shadows. Like they don't want side light. They go ballistic at side light. Now, if for those people who are in Toronto, you can go see Paul Matheson's work at the AGO because that's now where he's working. Mm -hmm. And he's revolutionized the light there in terms of how it helps tell the story. Mm -hmm. But I remember talking to him as he was just getting in, starting to work there, and that the curators did not want to see shadows on things because that's somehow taking away from the artifact itself. Mm -hmm. When to us... The shadows are everything. Everything, yeah, yeah, exactly. And do you have the same relationship with the curators as you would with a director? Or? Um, typically, in the museum world, the lighting consultant is working for the uh, design team, who then, they're the ones who work with the curator. Mm-hmm. So there's very little contact with, with the curator in that sense. Oh, so the other thing about museum work, for the most part, is you're working on min- miniature stages. Mm-hmm. So you've, you're trying to hide the lights, you've got a case... And what I discovered doing museum work is that if the case was properly designed with light in mind, then the lighting was already looked after. Right. And so it was to get in. It's, it's like getting in on the ground floor of the set and the masking before you put the lights in. If all that is worked out ahead of time, then the lighting is going to be easy. If it's not, then it's going to be painful. Right. Now, when you... Um Ryerson changed over to a university in the 19... Starting in the 90s. In the 90s. Yeah. And you, there was a requirement for you to continue teaching here? Did you go back to school, or did you choose to go back to York University to get your... No, I... uh, So Sandy Sandy had left, Mm -hmm. uh, I think passed away by that point, Mm -hmm. and Jean was retiring, and a position came up here. Mm -hmm. That's Jean Charles Black. Jean Charles Black, thank you. And I'd always wanted to teach, um, and work was slowing down a little bit, so I thought, okay, it's now or never. Mm -hmm. There was one year, in fact, when work freelance work was quite slow and the Ryerson filled the gap quite nicely. So mm-hmm. I thought this is a good thing to have. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, it's now or never. And I applied, did not get the job because I didn't have a degree. Remember, I just went to national theater school. Right. Uh, someone else was higher on the short list, but for reasons went away and they came to me, they said, we will give you the job if you go get a degree. Oh dear. What do I do now? So Ira Levine, who at that point was, 
uh, dean of the faculty, had been chair here, steered me towards York University, the interdisciplinary studies, and said, here's where you can go get your degree, you're a mature student. There's a long story about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got my degree, and so I was able to get to get tenure. And uh, let me just, your degree, I, just, I looked up, I couldn't find your dissertation, but... Uh, Happy to email it to That would be terrific. <laughs> it would be great to read. Great bedside reading. It great was, it, nighttime just, reading. Let me just read the title, though. It was Forging a Professional Community, the Evolution of the Institutions of English-Canadian Theatre from 55 to 79. What was the... Why? why? I mean, it's an interesting subject to yeah. me now, but yeah. did you... Like, how did you where, where that? did that come where from? Where did that come yeah. from? So, uh, starting in my... Somewhat at National Theatre School, but certainly in production managing at... Theatre Calgary, I was puzzled, appalled at the inability for us in the community to have a transparent, direct conversation about, that's a really nice idea, we can't afford it. Right. You can't have that conversation. Well, if you really tried, if you tried harder, if you're more creative, how about this? You know, that whole dance that we all know. Mm -hmm. And because of the stories that I'd heard out of Stratford, with John Hirsch particularly being profligate about stuff... Mm -hmm. Uh, I saw Stratford as the evil epicenter of this kind of thinking. Um, And Stratford, certainly at that point, was the epicenter for theater with enough resources. Mm -hmm. And when I was at Calgary, most of the people worked there in the summertime. So I went on a treasure hunt for that. Somewhat found it, not quite, but became fascinated with the evolution of the business side of not-for-profit theater in Canada, Mm And that's, that's what it became. Mm-hmm. And what, to my surprise, and Peter McKinnon's, who was one of my supervisors that came out of it, was how poorly the community, community being the theater companies, the educational institutions, and the funding bodies, treat training for management. Right. Yeah, it was really an adjunct here at Ryerson. Yeah, I mean, the, interestingly enough, when I was doing my research, when Ryerson, the theater school, started here... There was, uh, they tried to create a full three-year program in arts management. Mm -hmm. And when you read through the calendars, it died on the vine because there weren't enough bums and seats. Right. And so it's been a hard sell. Uh, And if you look at the structure of the program here, in fact, this is where Sandy was brilliant. He knew about management. He'd worked in England, where they understand that. He'd been a theater manager. And it's built into the structure, but the culture of the school had marginalized it, I think. And so I'm kind of glad to hear you say that. And what I've been working very hard is to switch that over. Mm -hmm. Because I think the the success of our community going forward and the survival is that we need to be more entrepreneurship and everybody needs to understand the business model of how it works. Oh, absolutely. I uh, And I tell this to everybody I talk to, I feel like theater now, live performance, should be a boutique experience, meaning that people should... The, 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 the performance is the core around which everything else kind of rotates, but you should also have... Not that dinner theater is what it should be, but you should have experiences that revolve around the play that enhance your experience, um, or or the audience audiences should be smaller so that it's a more intimate experience. Um, and the gone are the days of the kind of workman theater, where you know doing theater at lunch, people aren't going to come to those things. People, it's not in our culture to sort of experience. Um, as a as a daily thing theater it's a really kind of a special experience and so the more 
And 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 the the sad part is that in Europe it is part of the mm-hmm. the DNA. Where here it's it is it is that special event as opposed to something that one just does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that we're still so tied to that European model that we think it should be. Well, I guess the question is, who's we? Is it the audience or the the, prof- mm. the well, professionals think, in the institute? I think the professionals are are attached to that idea of the European right. Idea. And the reality is that that's not what it is. That the audience yeah. is not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and despite everybody's attempts at at the next generation and the outreach and the YPTs and the training and all that kind of stuff, it's it's become the value added sort of mm-hmm. you know the the specialty event as opposed to the. I mean, it's what what. In, in my research that I did, and I did extensive research, I was puzzled to find that theater was lumped under tourism and sports right? in terms of where it sat in the policy process and where mm-hmm. the money came from, certainly at the provincial level. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's a, that's a long, long conversation. That's exactly. That I'm going yeah. to have a panel discussion. Yeah, right. I'll yeah. invite you to it. Yeah. Okay, let's just wrap up by talking about the ADC. You were the chair of the negotiating committee of the Associated Designers of Canada from 81 to 2005. Is yes. That right? So you were ADC's bulldog, as it were. That's that's pretty much it. Well, yeah. there were other bulldogs too. Phil right. Silver was a bulldog. Um, uh, so the backstory for that is that um, Rob Thompson calls me up one day after being particularly abused, I think at Manitoba Theatre Centre over a musical, mm-hmm. and saying, we have to do something about this. And I'd gone to early ADC meetings and... And just had not, they, they weren't willing. There was lots of talk about being militant, but nobody's willing to be militant. Right. And so I just walked away. And Rob calls me up and I said, well, I'm willing, you know, a, a parade of one is no good, but the two of us, we might be able to get something started. So we sort of co-opt the organization and start bringing in like-minded people. And one of the key things that we're not, we're, we don't have a recognized contract. Mm-hmm. And I'm with the ballet, I think it was with the ballet, and we're up in Ottawa, and I walk into Andis Selms, who I think at that point was president of PACT, and I said, you have to negotiate with us. And he said, why should I? Because you guys don't have standards. If I hire a New York designer, I know that I'm going to get communication standards. And much to his surprise, I agreed with him, Mm -hmm. because I felt that having worked with set designers particularly, that it wasn't the strong suit in terms of communicating how how the show was to be built was it a big was it a that big a deal back then that people would draw on the back of a napkin and say build my set or um, well there there was there was it was soup to nuts as my departed mm-hmm. grandmother would say so people trained at National Theatre School so I'd worked with John Ferguson mm-hmm. I think a brilliant designer mm-hmm. who had gone to OCAD then gone to National Theatre School and he drew the show yeah. you know but then I'd worked in small theater in Toronto and so I knew what the what the range was mm-hmm. and so I think. Um, uh, Andis was totally taken aback and because I agreed with him he had to say okay so the deal that <laughs> was that we would go on uh, we would improve our communication standards if they would negotiate with us mm-hmm. did they negotiate in good faith nah, well right at the end of the first negotiation Ray and Andis said well you know of course that we don't have a mandate to agree to this this is just an, uh, an educational exercise Right. Yes. And is that because it was ADC? Because they didn't, because we didn't have clout. 
plain and this is all right. about power politics. Yeah, of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. And you and uh, I mean I know the ADC was supposed to be a union. That was the point when it was originally. When well, the if you read the history, um, as unions start evolving at CBC, because that's where the work was, yeah, nobody yeah. wanted to touch the designers because they didn't know what to do with them. Right. So uh, Murray Lawfer, um, uh, what's his name? Who we were talking about? Um, Martha Mann. Uh, no. Mar- I don't know if Martha was part of that first group. Uh, Ed Cotenin. So Murray, right. Murray Law for Ed Cotenin, Les Lawrence, who were a group of them. Mm-hmm. I think Les Lawrence might have been the first president. Um, they created the Associated Designers of Canada, which included film and television. Mm-hmm. And then as we revitalized the organization, because there have been a number of revitalizations, we had to shed film and television because we didn't have that jurisdiction anymore. Right. But that was kind of where it started. Uh, and... I don't know what the demands were of the CBC shops, but I'm assuming they, you know, I remember looking at Murray Lawford's drawings. He knew how to draw. He mm-hmm. could draw stuff. Um, so, but in the in the days of the alternative theater, there those standards didn't exist. I don't know what, certainly I did not see drawings comparable to what I knew was being cranked out in New York. Right. So, and it's absolutely had a point. So we, I came back to my colleagues and I said, if you want to get recognized, here's what we got to do. Right. So that's that was the so we created the first version of the standards out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, Alan Sitchbury and I had talked about a closed shop, whether or not <clears throat> whether it's good for the designers or good for the theaters or good for the community. Whether if there's a closed shop between the pack theaters and ABC. well, they'll never go for it until I mean designers aren't willing to be militant. And no. you know, if I come from a very left wing family, right. all that kind of stuff. So unless the workers are prepared to be militant. Management's not going to give them close shop. Right. And tell me about the minimum fees um, discussion that occurred in the 1990s. This is like... 20- well, I'll, I'll go back. So my first meetings that I went to at ADC, there was a conversation about fees and people weren't paying their filing fees, so there was no income for the organization. And the concern was, well, if you know what I'm earning, you will undercut me. And mm-hmm. my response was, no, if you're if I know what you're earning, I want that at least that and maybe more because mm-hmm. I, you know, so it was a different way of looking at things. Right. And um, uh, sorry, what was the question again? So, uh, the minimum, just tell me about the minimum. Oh, fees so 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 this this was the whole thing. So in terms yeah. of trying to create minimum fees, it was. People were really uncomfortable with that. Right. And there were enough um, anecdotal stories that when people were negotiated harder, they wouldn't get asked back. And that's certainly been my experience. So to establish a minimum fee was a really, really painful experience. We man- we got the first minimum fees that were not recognized, but so they were the recommended fees. Mm-hmm. And then were you at the meeting when we had the... I don't remember. Okay. So long ago. Yeah. So no, no. So the more recent one was the negotiated one, which was a very, very difficult conversation. Of Pact was willing to accept minimum fees. The senior designers felt that they would lose income because of it, mm-hmm. and the junior designers were. I would only. I can only dream of fees this big. Mm-hmm. Right. So you know, a very, very difficult conversation. Indeed. So just to wrap up, I um. And just to put you sort of your career kind of in context, um, you've been very successful, really. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, one of the ones that sort of made it. I know a lot of right. people kind of leave. I mean, I left in yeah. the mid thirties. Yeah. Um, what would I you, lasted longer? You How about that? Maybe that's, I know. <laughs> that's I've, I've now got. I've now got a day job. I know. Kevin said it was more of a war of attrition. You know, <laughs> we well, I can about. remember Kevin's back back to fees. Kevin. Lamont. Kevin Lamont. I yeah. remember Kevin saying, you know, how do I break through the $1,000 barrier? Yeah. 
you know, you get lots of small shows. How do I get the big shows? So yeah, it's really hard. Yeah. And, and what I liked about corporate is that you could say, this is what I'm worth. And people agreed with you. Right. You got paid well, you worked really, really hard in a short period of time. And it was, it was, you could have that business conversation mm -hmm. in that world, which unfortunately doesn't exist in the, in the performing arts world. Mm -hmm. Now, what about people who are coming into the business now? What would you tell them? First of all, what's the biggest difference between when you started and with somebody starting now, and what would you what would your advice be to somebody who wants to make a career of this? I mean, I know this is what you do every day, but I don't know if you, you know. Ever... As I'm thinking about it, I don't know if anything has changed. You know, I talked about Mary and Andre going. You know, why? You know, why, you, why should you? You know, I didn't think you thought about money. A couple of other anecdotes when I met Tom Skelton for the first time. He's, I was got introduced as wanting to be a lighting designer. He said, kid, prepare to starve. Mm -hmm. And when I ne negotiated for those operas that I did for the opera company and I negotiated with, was negotiating with Geiger Terrell, and he wanted to pay me. So there were, I was doing two shows. One was a double bill and one was standalone. And I said, well, the double bill, I'm basically doing three shows. And he went, no, you're just doing two shows. And he said, lighting design will only ever be a hobby. Right. So that, that, was, his, that was his approach to it. Mm. Um, and I don't know if really big picture if that's changed I just you know because I'm not in that community anymore I just don't know so I think in terms of someone becoming successful to be able to make a living at it I think the road it's it's a different road but it's equally as hard mm -hmm. the advice uh, the advice that all of us did is go out and get whatever work you can working in the theater and you may your first jobs you may have to do them for free and you start developing a name for yourself and maybe hopefully connect with people who are like-minded and as their success grows your success grows terrific well, we'll do it at that thank you very much Roland. okay my pleasure Great. and that was lighting designer Sholem Dolgoy we will have to convene a panel to have a big discussion on color that with the advent of LED tech is going to continue to be a controversial topic. The music for this podcast is Podsafe Music from the band 1990s called See You at the Lights. You can find them at roughtraderecords.com forward slash the 1990s. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at thetitleblockca and on facebook.com forward slash thetitleblockpodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you adjust your antennae to tune in to the missing color. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Title Block.